Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you very much indeed again. I feel really, really humbled and tremendously honored to be invited to come to speak here this evening. And it's uh, just uh, such a privilege that God has given to me. Uh, Many of you, or some of you at least, have heard my testimony and shared and heard how God called me into full-time work. But uh, for the sake of those who haven't heard me before, I'd just like to give a brief background of why I went to the mission field in the first place, a little bit of what I've been doing, and then show you a few pictures uh, to illustrate the work that I was doing out there. Before I do that, I just want to mention that I have some prayer letters, and I will be at the door on the way out. If anybody would like one, you're welcome to it. Uh, They're a little bit outdated, uh, but they're uh, still... Uh, got some information about it and uh, uh, prayer points, points for praise and points for prayer. Uh, Over the months and over the last number of six months, uh, I've been truly blessed through reading the Psalms and, and so many of the Psalms I can identify because of what I went through. And of course, the one that so many people the, the Congolese Christians, after I'd been shot and came and wanted to pray with me, I think they were all quoting that very familiar psalm, the 23rd psalm, which we were hearing about earlier on. I could also identify with the Psalm 40, which we, uh, those of you who are here in this church this evening at the evening service, uh, shared together how uh, wonderful it was, how the psalmist David said, that he waited patiently for the Lord, and how God lifted him out of the slimy pit, lifted him out and put his feet upon a rock and established his ways. And I could identify with that. But the 23rd Psalm is the one that I can identify. And you know, from early life, in early, my early days, this Psalm has been special to me. And over and over and over again, you know, the Lord brings something fresh and new to, to every one of us through this Psalm. So I'm going to read it again. Although you all know it by heart, although we're all very familiar with it, I think we should read it again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I've proved so much of what David was saying here in this lovely psalm. And he could say, the Lord is my shepherd. And isn't that wonderful? We were just hearing a little earlier on this evening there how important it is to have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Both before God can call us to do any type of missionary work, we have to be willing to give ourselves wholly, entirely to him. 
I was brought up uh, uh, to go to church and Sunday school as a child, knew about the Lord Jesus in my head, didn't know him in my heart. It wasn't until I went to do nursing training in Belfast and through the influence of Nurses Christian Fellowship and Christian nurses that I came to realize my need of salvation. But I had preconceived ideas about Christians. I used to think they were just a a, a, a huddle of holy people in a, in a little group who got themselves emotionally worked up and then made a decision. And I had these very foolish preconceived ideas that God wasn't real. It was just people getting emotionally worked up and making a decision. So God proved to me that it was nothing like that at all, that he was very, very real. And as I began to realize my need of salvation and began to get a hunger and thirst in my heart to know God in a real way, as these friends of mine did, I uh, began to ask God to make himself real to me. And nothing happened when I had asked him to come into my heart. Nothing seemed to happen. I just had no assurance that God was real. And then one evening I was out visiting my uncle who was a retired Presbyterian minister and he was leaving me to the bus stop and he was discussing something about the ecumenical movement, something he didn't really approve of. But he actually, he said to me and he challenged me, you know, the most important thing is asking Jesus into your life. And he challenged me just as a bus was coming along to take me back to the nurse's home, uh, asked me if Jesus was living in my heart. And it just seemed as though God was knocking on my heart's door and wanting me to come in. And suddenly I said, I didn't, I didn't even have time to answer, uh, to answer my uncle because the bus was came and I was on the bus. But I said to the Lord Jesus, come into my heart. And just there on the bus of all places, I knew God became real to me, became alive to me. And I realized then nothing to do with emotion, nothing to do with uh, getting worked up at meetings or anything like that, but God became real to me. And God became the center of my life after that. After that, I only wanted to do God's will for my life. Before that, I tried to read God's word. It didn't really mean any sen- make any sense to me. But after I'd asked Jesus into my heart and life, Holy Spirit came and began to open up the word of God to me. And, and so he became real. And as I read the word of God and heard the needs on the mission field, I began to get a desire to serve him. And, uh, you know, uh, as I looked back at how Jesus called the disciples, he called very ordinary men. Because when I felt God was challenging me, I thought, I couldn't possibly be a missionary. I'm far too weak and inadequate. I couldn't stand up and preach the gospel. And yet, as I looked, God chose fishermen. And uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, he said, And Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. Uh, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. That's the thing. We've got, if we make a decision, we make a decision. We don't turn back. And so they said, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then going going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That's it. They're making that decision and to follow Jesus and follow him. No turning back, as the old chorus said, and uh, keep following him. And so he called his disciples. And then we see later on 
uh, when the disciples were following Jesus and we were, they were with him when he was doing all these wonderful miracles and, and, and uh, healing the sick and making the blind to see and the lame to walk. And they'd seen many miracles that Jesus did, turning the bread into, uh, feeding the 5,000, etc. And then uh, we come to where Jesus was predicting his death and he was going towards Jerusalem. And uh, he told the disciples that he would have to suffer and die and be killed. And he said, uh, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that uh, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, never, Lord, uh, they shall never, that shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not know, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And here was, uh, uh, Jesus had already uh, encouraged uh, Peter because uh, he had said that he was a Christ. Uh, but here we have, when, G when Peter tried to discouraged Jesus from going to the cross. And he said, no, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus made this very famous statement. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's no easy path. If you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And what shall it be for, uh, for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to what he has done. And so this is the great challenge. Jesus told the disciples when he first called them, follow me. And then he challenged them whenever they... Uh, things were going well, and they, uh, they saw the wonderful miracles that what Jesus was doing. But then when Jesus challenged them and told them that he was going to be crucified and rise again from the dead, and they just, Peter couldn't accept that. And uh, so we all know the story of Peter so well. Uh, but Jesus said, if any man will come, let him deny himself. What does that mean? That means denying his personal, his, uh, personal desires and fleshly desires and follow Jesus. And we all know what happened to Peter and how he denied our Lord at the cross, uh, just as Jesus before he was crucified and denied our Lord three times. How weak in the flesh he was. But then, as we were hearing there just a few minutes ago about Pentecost and the tremendous change after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down upon Peter and how he was completely transformed, his fear of man had gone. And that's the secret. The fear of man had gone. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit and power and began to preach the people and tell them their need of salvation, that they needed to, uh, to get right with God. And then the Lord Jesus uh, before he ascended to heaven, and we all know the commission that he gave to the disciples just after he had risen from the dead. And he said, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And you know, that's the secret. It's the all power and authority that Jesus has, that he's promised to go to be with us wherever we go to serve him. He doesn't send us out powerless. 
He sends us out with his Holy Spirit and power. And it's his Holy Spirit that transforms life. It's not the like of me and other missionaries who just go to speak. If we were speaking in our own strength, it would be useless. But we're going out in God's power to speak his word, to challenge people. And that's the secret. Uh, to present to them the gospel and how God can transform lives completely from being insipid, weak, fearful people and fearful of the world. Then he says, all power, all authority is given unto me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am with you always. I always remember when I first went to the mission field, uh, a, a lady from England sent me a, a verse. And you know, lots of people had been said, because they all knew how timid I was, about fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Lovely promises. Not be afraid, be strong and have a good courage. But her promise was, and lo, Oh, I am with you always. That has been so special to me, that no matter what situation, no matter what difficulty, no matter what problem, that Jesus was with me, with all his power and authority, and that made all the difference in the world. And it's so wonderful just to prove him uh, uh, over the years. Yes, I uh, accepted him as Lord and Savior of, of my life, and then I finished my, my general training and went over to Edinburgh to do my midwifery training. Halfway through my midwifery training, I felt um, God, again, was challenging me. I'd never fasted and prayed in my life, but I decided this particular day uh, to uh, skip dinner, go up to my bedroom, close the door, got on down on my hands and knees, ask God what he would have me do with my life. Told him that I felt I really wasn't capable of being a missionary. I was too weak. I was too shy. I was too timid. And yet he said, Behold, I have laid before you an open door that no man can shut. From Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, with my scripture reading for that day from Scripture Union Notes. And, uh, uh, and I was very, still fearful, still doubtful. And I asked him for a seal. I prayed that within 24 hours, if he really wanted me to be a missionary, to do into full-time work, in 20, within 24 hours, I would hear something about a Bible college. And sure enough, the next morning in the pigeonhole, uh, when I let, went to collect my mail, there was only one letter, and it was uh, uh, the uh, Bible school in Glasgow. And uh, so God just confirmed to me and I'm so glad of that confirmation down the years when things were tough in the mission field that I could look back and say that God clearly called me. And he, you know, when we're in the center of God's will, he dovetails things together. And so I finished my midwifery training in the December and there was a vacancy for me in the WAC Missionary Training College in Glasgow in the January. And uh, when I went there, then God put upon my heart the land of Congo. You know, when we joined WAC, we had to study the history of WAC, and it all started in the Congo by a man called C.T. Studd, and I'm sure uh, many of you have heard him, uh, heard of him, and uh, know his history or read the story. And you all know the story how he started off um, from an aristocratic family, how uh, through Moody, he and his, uh, 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 his father and the sons came to the Lord, went to Cambridge University, and then there was the famous seven uh, um, who left there to go out to China, to Hudson Taylor, uh, to serve the Lord out there. 
and uh, he uh, did tremendous work in China, met his wife, had his four daughters there, then went to India to uh, evangelize the uh, uh, Indians uh, uh, from the plantation where his father had made all his wealth, and then came home. He was broken in health. He was in his mid-50s, and he saw a large poster that said, Cannibals Need Christ, the heart of Africa. And uh, people told him he was absolutely mad and crazy to even consider going there. But he said God had given him a vision of those cannibals, and they needed Christ. And so he was going out, and uh, the people, uh, his church, his supporters, the doctors, they all said he was mad, crazy, shouldn't even think about it. But he made a very famous statement. It's still the motto of our mission today. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And uh, we have little uh, 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 cards here with this motto on it. I'll have them at the door on the way out. If anybody uh, would like to get one of those, we'll have them. And there'll be, actually, there'll be lots more around uh, on the mission stall uh, uh, outside and uh, where the mission stands are. But you can get one on your way out this evening. But it's a challenge. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice. And we were hearing a little earlier about sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Paul also said in Romans 12, and t- uh, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, he was this really begging, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him. A living sacrifice. You know, the Jews in the past had been offering dead sacrifices, but he wanted a living sacrifice, like Abraham offering up his live son Isaac on a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, a life that was sanctified and holy given over to him, holy, acceptable, that it's acceptable God, without sin, without blemish, uh, and uh, uh, which is our reasonable service. And you know, um, whenever uh, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. It wasn't just once, but daily. That's the secret, giving ourselves totally to God daily. And if we do that, then God equips us. It's only as we get rid of ourselves. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Galatians 2 and 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And you know, it's only when we get rid of ourselves and are crucified, uh, as it were, with Christ, then he fills us with his Holy Spirit and his power and his enabling. And so uh, I uh, felt God was calling me to the Congo. He confirmed that through a memorial service to missionaries who had been killed in the 64 rebellion. And of course, uh, I think most people saw that program on the BBC one about Bob McAllister and uh, uh, the memorial, the celebration of the 50 years since a lot of the missionaries, or a number of missionaries were martyred in the Congo. And God really challenged me uh, at, a memorial, at, the, at the memorial service at that time, 1964, to replace one of the missionaries who had been martyred at that time. And that was a great, I found that a great honor, a great privilege. To me, it wasn't a sacrifice. To me, it was an honor. It was a privilege to go to serve the Lord and really, really exciting. And I just praise him for that. And so I uh, uh, 
finished my two years in Glasgow and to do a candidate's course in London for six months and then I had to go to, because uh, Congo is a French-speaking country, I had to go to Belgium to do a tropical diseases course in French, which was a challenge, and then out to Africa. And I'm sure many of you know where Congo is. It's a large country in the heart of Africa. And uh, in those days, we used to sail to the mission field away back in 1968, sailed round the west coast of Africa to the port of Matadi, and then uh, did a little stage for six weeks so that I could be acceptable uh, to do medical work, and then went up to the northeast of Congo, where I've been working the north and eastern side of Congo, where I've been working ever since, off and on. Apart from a few years when there was a war on in the Congo and we were evacuated so many times and, and it was too dangerous to go back for a couple of years, so then I went to work in southern Sudan with Samaritan's Purse for a couple of years. That was like going out of the frying pan into the fire at that stage because the war was still going on in Sudan. But it was wonderful to prove God. Again, just story after story of God's deliverance, of God undertaking, and the tremendous honor and privilege of preaching the gospel, of leading souls to himself. That was just such a tremendous privilege. Now, over the years, I've worked on various mission stations in the Congo, uh, Ibambe, Wamba, Nibabongo, where Dr. Helen Roosevelt started a little hospital. But latterly, since 1986, I've been at a little place called Molita, now, when I went there, the missionaries had already established a church. They had a leprosy work going. They had a little Bible school going, and they wanted to start a the church. Wanted to start a little hospital because there were many people dying in the forest. Uh, for various reasons. The women were dying in childbirth because there was no one to help them with the delivery of their babies. And there were men dying of strangulated hurlies. Children were dying of malaria, so they wanted their own little hospital. And they asked me, would I train nurse midwives and train uh, as best I could auxiliary nurses. Uh, and so we started. I didn't know anything about building, but you know, when God calls, he equips in the most amazing ways. Uh, we, uh, I called the church leaders. I, I went to work they had built little huts. They said that was their hospital. Well, I went to the maternity, and I tried to wash a mud floor. You try to wash a mud floor, see how well you get on. Uh, pretty impossible. And uh, so I called the church leaders together, and I said, we need to make bricks, burn the bricks so they'll be waterproof. We need proper cement floors that are going to be washed. We need proper ceilings and uh, roofs, uh, tin roofs with ceilings, because the leaf roofs, there were rats running through them everywhere. So um, uh, we started, and the, the ladies coming uh, uh, to our antenatal clinic brought us a, one large stone or two smaller stones for the foundation of our maternity unit. There was a, 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 an architect in my church at home who drew up a little plan which duly impressed the authorities, and we started a building project. And uh, we started building our little maternity, uh, got two, uh, some men into the forest to cut, because we were really in a forest area, cut down trees and uh, sawed them into planks, and uh, we started our building project. And we uh, built our maternity unit, and then we built a surgical ward, an operating theater, and extended our outpatients. And uh, so just God blessed the work and the work continued to, ex to expand. As well as that, I was helping with the church. I was helping with the Bible school, uh, teaching there as well. And so it was wonderful uh, just to prove God and God's enabling. But that wasn't until the war came 
And then after the war, uh, people were so disillusioned by President Mobutu, who had been in power for 33 years, completely destroyed the whole infrastructure of the country. And then uh, we would go back, we were evacuated, going back, and, and eventually, as I say, uh, because of the war, couldn't work any longer in the Congo for a few years, but eventually got back. 2002, worked at Nebobongo, and then back uh, finally down to Molita again, 2004. And a lot of the buildings had been burned to the ground and destroyed. The people had fled into the forest. There was practically nobody left at Mulita. But as soon as I arrived, it was really amusing because the Africans would say, oh, the war must be over. Mademoiselle's back. <laughs> so uh, so uh, we started our building project again. The buildings that we'd built already were perfectly all right. Apart from the maternity, there'd been a tornado, a sort of a mini tornado, lifted the roof off the maternity blew it right away across the market area. So we had to put a new roof on the maternity unit. And then we started our building project again, got our medical ward finally built, administration block, etc. When we'd finished that, then I realized there were, the community at Molita was growing and there were a lot of children and they had no schooling. And so I had a burden that the children needed to be educated. So again, we started another building project this time to build a little primary school. So we got a seven-classroom primary school built, and we're training personnel, training teachers to teach in our primary school. Got that completed, and then the uh, little siblings, the little uh, brothers and sisters of the children at the primary school wanted to go to school as well. So we realized then we needed a little nursery. So it was just last year then we decided we'd start building a little nursery uh, when, when we just got that right underway when the incident happened of my shooting. Now, uh, many of you heard this morning or on the radio today, or if you hadn't already read about it in the newspapers, what had happened in the uh, shooting incident, and that uh, put an end to to my work. Now, the Africans did try to continue working on, uh, but at this point, I would like just to show you some pictures, and uh, then uh, we'll come to an end. Uh, Usually because after the war, the large hospital where where there was a large pharmacy at Nienkunde, we used to get our medical supplies there, but it was completely destroyed in the war. So after the war, I would order medical supplies via email from Kampala and then get them and charter a MAF plane and take them into Molita. So this is me on the MAF plane uh, going into Molita. And this is our mission station here. And uh, this is the hospital here. That's the maternity. My house is over here. The airstrip is here. Church is there. The Bible school is off the picture over on this side. Uh, (laughs) So you just have to imagine what the Bible school's like. And... uh, we, over the year, we had a centenary celebration two years ago to celebrate C.T. Studd's first... When C.T. Studd came to Congo in 19 and 13, there wasn't one Christian, just cannibals. But God graciously, by his Holy Spirit brought those cannibals to himself. And now we have a church of over 200,000 Christians. What God has done in a hundred years through one man's obedience to God. And what God can do if we're just totally sold to him. And uh, so uh, as part of our centenary celebration, uh, the, the previous missionaries to me at Molita had built this church but roofed it with old tin from Belgian houses, which got rustier and rustier, and every time there was a storm, another bit blew off, so we decided to re-roof it for our centenary celebrations. 
And then uh, we also finished off that ward and dedicated that to God and then built a seven-classroom Bible, uh, seven-classroom primary school and uh, very humble that they should call it school after me. Tried to get that changed, but they wouldn't change it. Uh, and uh, we had about 400 children in our primary school, so you can understand the need. And you'd look at those uniforms. All those uniforms were sewn with little hand sewing machines uh, because we have no electricity there. Uh, and we've preached the gospel, of course. Many of these children come from pagan backgrounds as well. This is the uh, joint medical stores in Kampala where I would uh, purchase the medical supplies, and you can see why I needed to charter a whole plane because I brought in all the medical supplies that we needed for the next year, uh, plus other supplies. And then um, uh, we, uh, my, the pharmacist was delighted to see me because he had completely run out of medicines and so he was delighted. Lots of children are running water supplies, a bit different from the running water we have in this country because we don't have taps, but we have the children coming with the water in their heads from the water hole. And uh, then uh, we needed uh, to continue on. I was telling you about building the nursery, and these are the original two brick buildings, uh, uh, brick, brick machines that we uh, built our hospital with, built our, nurse, uh, our church with, built our primary school with only makes two bricks each of them only make two bricks at a time so it takes a long time getting enough bricks and then uh, we dry uh, we demolish antils we use the mud from antils which is the best mud for making the bricks and uh, then uh, we build the after the bricks are dried then we build them into a kiln and burn the bricks and again we buy a lot of firewood and that gives a little bit of employment to the the people then we uh, uh, dug the foundations for the nursery and got them well uh, underway and got the, the foundations in. And uh, just wanted to mention uh, this man here on the right of the picture is our head carpenter. And there was a family in my church at home who support me well. And uh, when he died last year, the family had the money in lieu of flowers uh, given to me for my work in Congo. So they had a little plaque made. So I asked our head carpenter to make a bigger plaque so that we could uh, put it up on the nursery. But I just want to mention that um, uh, head carpenter. On the, on the day that I was, on the, the day before, uh, of the night that I was shot, it was a Sunday, it was Sunday night I was shot, the, uh, the th three bandits came in and uh, they stopped at this man Nelson's house. Nelson had no idea who they were, but one of them claimed to be a far-out relative of his wife. And because they were having a meal when they arrived, he invited them to eat with them. And so they had a meal. And he had no idea that they were bandits. Uh, but that night after I was shot and they were looking for the bandits, then the people then began to say they saw them at Nelson's house. And because of that uh, association, he was, uh, they wanted to arrest him. So he fled into the forest with his wife and family and is still hiding in the forest. Uh, he did try to come out at one time, but he was told he would be thrown into prison and beaten up and etc., etc. So I would just ask you to pray for Nelson. I've been in contact with the governor and various people to try to get him freed. Uh, also, this man here, whose father is also in, in prison um, for the same reason, again, he had been seen talking to these, um, these bandits the week before I was shot in the local town uh, 30 miles away. 
And uh, because of that association, he was thrown into prison and still in prison, completely innocent. He had no idea these were bandits he was talking to. He was just talking to them generally. Uh, but just because of the corruption in that country, uh, very difficult. That's him, actually. He and I were going that day to visit the, the um, governor. And our little side road, you can see the bamboo had completely taken it over. And then we came to the main road. These are, this is the main road. It was the main road to Mulit, uh, to our town of Punya. And you can see how the vehicles get stuck. And see the back end of this pickup uh, here. And uh, they got stuck and they were digging them out and then leaving a bigger hole for the next vehicle. But, uh, <laughs> but eventually, uh, a, a, a German company came and they very kindly... Uh, started to repair. This is the first year, first time in all my years that this company has come out. Germany, I think it's Germans, uh, Germany's uh, contribution to help it, to aid to Africa, and uh, so they were working on the road, doing a tremendous job. Uh, really, particularly for the bridges. This used to be a very bad log bridge, and before my Land Rover was stolen, I used to get stuck on this log bridge. But now it's a wonderful bridge. Uh, also, this is a little bridge. Uh, some of you who saw my pictures last year will remember that bridge. There was only one log that you could walk on. And while I was contemplating how to cross it, uh, this, uh, this young man lifted my bicycle and off he went. So um, I approached the, the Germans to repair this uh, road, bridge, but they said, we've only been given funding for the main road, not for the little side road. But after uh, some persuasion, they really did, they repaired it. And you can see the difference it made. I don't even have to get off my bicycle to cross it anymore. Uh, and this is our local shopping center here, back on two wheels. <laughs> we don't have proper shopping centers or anything. But they, these guys, they buy things in Kisangani, and then they come a couple of hundred miles on bicycle and go through the villages and sell their wares. Uh, this lady here was on the back of a motorbike on the repaired road going round a corner full speed ahead. The tire burst, and off she went and uh, had a was brought into us with very severe head injuries. Uh, we really did, didn't think she would survive the night. She had Her pupils were not reacting to light. They were all equal. She had a huge gash in the side of her face, and she was completely unconscious. She was bleeding from her ear. And we didn't think she would survive the night, but we prayed, and we prayed earnestly that God would do a miracle and save this lady, because she was pregnant and the mother of some small children. And God did a miracle. The next morning, she wakened up, and we couldn't believe it. And when we asked asked her if she was a Christian. She said, oh, when I was a child, I asked Jesus into my heart, but I've never gone on with God, and, but I would really like to get right with God. I know God has done a miracle. And uh, she made a remarkable recovery and came to know the Lord Jesus. And you know, that's the wonderful thing about medical work. We have wonderful opportunities of presenting the gospel. And this is a big uh, ferry which the German company put on. Our old ferry was destroyed in the war in 1997. Uh, and so since that, to cross this large river, we always had to cross in canoes. It was also one of the reasons I couldn't replace the Land Rover that had been stolen during the war. And uh, I, I was down there on this occasion to meet the governor who was coming through and had... Um, it, it, we were all invited to go to welcome him, and when he saw me in the crowd, he asked uh, to see him. And I had a wonderful un interview with him, and he promised to help me in any way he could. Uh, so that was tr tremendous, because I have taken him up on that. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you in a minute why. Uh, 
Anyhow, we got him off on the uh, ferry to cross that big river, and uh, they saw him off, and then back to church. This is the children uh, on Christmas, and ch- we have a special children's Christmas Day service, and these were the children... Uh, some of the children uh, at the front of the church responding to the gospel whenever we challenged, gave them the message, and then they took part and did their little actions and singing and quoting verses of scripture. And then Christmas Day came, and uh, I just particularly wanted to show this lady here. Uh, she was in a heavy labor previous Christmas Eve night. I'd spent half the night with her, and as I always do when I'm called to a patient, I prayed with her, but I asked her if she was a Christian, did she know Jesus in her heart? She said, no. And I said, you, you, you're not a Christian? No. So uh, we continued as we were waiting for this baby to arrive. Uh, we explained to her the gospel and spoke to her and prayed with her. And then the baby, she eventually, with a little bit of difficulty, she eventually, and with some aid, we got the baby arrived safely, a live baby. So we're putting her back in bed, and I said, we're going to thank God, because God has answered her prayer and given you a live, healthy baby. She said, Mademoiselle, wait, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. So that was Christmas Day, so she got a new baby, and she got a new heart, and Jesus came into her heart. Um, and then these are twins again. The second one uh, was, they were about two, three weeks old on Christmas Day. Uh, but again, the second one was a, a, a difficult delivery, very delayed, and uh, couldn't breathe. We had to do artificial respiration for about 20 minutes. No incubators, no oxygen. But again, God, we prayed much. The mother was a keen Christian, and that baby survived with no brain injury. And it was just a wonderful witness and testimony. And then New Year's Day, and we have New Year's Day out in Africa when everybody eats together and fellowships together, and then back to the maternity, and I was giving out again baby clothes that various people had given me here at home to take out to Africa to share around the, the mothers and to share with the woman. Uh, this, uh, that's the twins lady again. And these are three midwives because it was a holiday. They weren't in uniform. But this is the wife of the man who's in prison down in, kin- in Kindu. The middle lady is Mama Rebecca, who called me the night that I was shot. And this is Jean dressed up like a lady to entertain the ladies. But he's a university-trained nurse whom I've been training to take over my work. Now, uh, little did I know a couple of days later that I would be the patient and uh, I, I think most of you know exactly what happened, but very briefly it was Mama Rebecca called me uh, about this patient who needed a cesarean section. She'd had previous cesarean sections. We dealt with that problem. I was settling down to sleep again. Another wrap on the same uh, shutters of the bedroom uh, that I was in exactly the same window. And this male voice was very insistent. I was needed in the maternity. I tried to reassure him. Everything was under control there. No, he was insistent. Of course, it was a bandit luring me outside. I got to the back door. My night guard was there waiting for me. And when he heard, I realized I needed to go to the hospital. We locked the back door and off we went to the hospital, where, of course, no one could understand why I was there. They said they hadn't called me. There was no emergency. So we decided to go back to the house again. Never dawned on me that this was a setup by the, the bandits. And we just got back to the house and we're gone through the compound gate when suddenly these two bandits came running around from the back of the house and one with a, point, a gun pointed at me like that. They were both masked and wearing uh, camouflage clothing. The gun was, I thought, a bit of a stick wrapped in weeds and, and whatnot. The other bandit grabbed my night guard and went off with them. 
And I went to grab, I thought, this guy's not going to uh, threaten me. I'm going to be in control here. So I grabbed at the gun, what I thought was just a bit of a stick. As I grabbed at it, he just pulled the trigger. And of course, I knew it was a real gun. And it was (coughs) terrific noise, terrific pain. And uh, I yelled at the top of my voice as loud as I could, really to alert other people. Uh, But I think it frightened him because he ran off. (laughs) Passed me and off he went out through the gate again. And uh, then I started shouting for the pastor and various people and no one came for quite a long time. So I, because I could feel blood trickling down my back, I pressed my back against the wall. And God gave me the strength to remain standing there, I'm sure at least for 10 minutes, until eventually my night guard got himself released from the bandit and came back to me. And because I was still calling for the pastor and various other people who lived around, he said, I'll go and call them. So off he went to call them. And very, very soon they beat the drum and everybody suddenly appeared. Uh, but, uh, and then they helped me into the house. And I can remember distinctly on that way round the side of the house in the back, going through the back door, I was even able to unlock the back door, but I remember God saying to me, I'm in control here. And that was just such a wonderful realization that in it all, God was in control. And that was marvelous. And just to know his peace, no fear, no anger, just his peace. So by the time, then when I got into the uh, uh, sitting room or the living room, I just collapsed. That's when I collapsed. Uh, on the floor, and then uh, the nurses tried to put up uh, IVs to replace fluid loss. That's the back. And that's the wall where I was pressed up against. You can see how the blood had really infiltrated the bricks and uh, how it, proving how long I'd been standing there. And uh, this is the pastor here. Uh, uh, and he, at this time, then sent various groups of people out to look for the bandits, to call the chief six kilometers away at the ferry crossing, and another group to go to the nearest telephone was 30 miles away. I had a satellite phone, which only I could operate, but I wasn't no ship to, to work on uh, to to use the the phone. So uh, another group of people went on bicycles uh, to uh, contact, to let our church president know and let MAF know. And uh, uh, so, and then this is my little night guard here in the red T-shirt. And he, only for him coming, I probably would have died there because everyone else was too frightened to come out. They, when they heard the gunfire and heard me shouting, they thought the bandits were there and they would get shot if they came near me. So only the, the little night guard himself had the courage to do that. But since that, he has been arrested three times. Don't ask me why. Um, the corruption of Africa. First time he had to pay $150 to get free. Second time he was in a, in a local prison. I was able to contact, that's when I contacted the governor and uh, the head of the military, and uh, they eventually let him free. Third time I wasn't informed that he was put into the small prison and then sent to the bigger prison, the capital of Armenia province, uh, at Kinduf, uh, one month ago, and I've been trying to get him released. I've talked to the governor, I've talked to the head of the military, and uh, they've assured me that he's innocent, that he'll get free, he had nothing to do with it, uh, but he's still in prison. And I think they said, if we will hand over money, they will let him out of prison. So this is the corruption, this is the terrible need that we have for prayer. So just pray for him. He, uh, last weekend, I heard he was very ill because Prisoners out there don't get fed unless their relatives or friends give them food. 
And he obviously was, he'd lost a lot of weight. He was very thin. He had no family near him to give him food. He was just dependent on all the other prisoners helping him. He, had, he must have eaten um, bad food, which caused him to be ill. And he was very near death's door last weekend. So I was able to get some money out to somebody to bring him food and medicine. So just pray uh, for uh, him, my night guard. His name is Onandi, but if you don't remember that, just pray for his release. And we're really working very hard to try to get him out of prison. And uh, then eventually they got me. I was a little better. They got me onto a couch. And uh, graduate three o'clock in the morning, the chief arrived, and uh, he, uh, with his entourage of soldiers, who took statements about what had happened. And four o'clock in the morning, they got one of the bandits. And then about two, three weeks later, they got the second one who was responsible for shooting me. There apparently was a third one whom they haven't yet got, but are still searching for him. And uh, eventually uh, got me into bed. And 12 hours, it was 12 hours later before a math plane was able to come. They had to go to uh, Nebobongo uh, to collect up this German doctor and his wife, who were good friends of mine, who wanted to come, as well as two other doctors. Uh, and they were also bringing blood transfusion from the Germans had donated blood for me. And uh, this, this is actually um, where uh, we had gone in that night through that gate. And it was just along this wall where I was shot and uh, uh, where the incident happened. And uh, there we have uh, Matthias, the doctor, German doctor, and his wife, Sabine, who remained with me until I uh, returned to England about six, seven weeks later. And uh, they did an ultrasound. Now, I was in and out of consciousness. I really don't have any recollection of the next few pictures. I have no recollection of being carried out of the house, of being transported onto the plane. That's all completely, I was completely unconscious. So I just praise God. God was gracious uh, because that bullet went in here. There was a large, large blood vessel. Every time the medical staff were doing my dressing, they were amazed that that uh, bullet hadn't punctured that blood vessel. Where it came out at the back, it uh, fractured two vertebrae and two ribs, and it just missed my spinal cord by the fraction, a fraction of, uh, uh, I don't know, a centimeter. Really very, very close. And really, it was God even directed the bullet through my uh, body. And I just praise God for that. And, uh, uh, but because uh, I'd lost so much blood, uh, I was really in and out of consciousness. Um, and then the governor had given instructions to send the military from Punya, armed military, with their grenades and whatnot. And uh, I was told, <laughs> how true this was, but I was told that if I had died, uh, there was going to be an all-out bloodbath, and that would have been absolutely terrible, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why God preserved my life, uh, is to prevent other people being killed that night or that day. Uh, so they eventually got me on the plane, and uh, the church said they prayed for me and said the final farewells. And uh, again, the, the staff, the two German, uh, German couple who came were more than good to me. They uh, got me the blood going, and that did help me. By the time I got to Niankundi, I was beginning to waken up again. And so I praise God for that. Uh, now, I have no recollection, um, I have no pictures of being at Niankundi, but then uh, a week later, I was discharged to the pilot's house, and uh, this is the German lady, and she was a nurse midwife, so she continued uh, giving me my uh, uh, treatment and uh, drugs and do my dressings, etc., etc. 
Uh, this is a pilot who's very fond of animals, as you can see, and uh, great, very hospitable. And um, one of our church leaders came quite a distance to visit with me, and then uh, fellowship with the math pilots and their wives couldn't have been better. They were so good and so helpful, caring for me, feeding me, uh, doing my laundry, uh, just in every way, giving me books to read, praying with me, uh, such a comfort and strength. And again, this is one of the math pilots uh, invi- inviting us to a meal in the evening. Uh, the, this, 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 this pilot, John, he's so fond of animals, he had six chameleons as part of his Christmas tree decorations, which was still up when I was there. <laughs> and uh, then when I arrived at Nebobongo, where the German doctor and his wife really work, uh, it was very humbling, the crowds of people there who were there to meet me particularly this lady, an old lady who, when I first went to uh, Congo in 1968, was working in the maternity, and she's still there. She's well into her 80s. Godly, godly lady. has led many to the Lord. Does a lot of children's work as well. But there she was, tears running down her face, thanking God uh, that my life had been spared. And uh, so... uh, it was just wonderful to prove him. Uh, they didn't have a comfortable chair in that house, so I spent most of my time in bed. And uh, then we had ch- uh, church general assembly meetings. These people, had, and that's my wound after about um, a month. And uh, then I went to the church general assembly. The president asked me to come to greet the church because they'd all been praying for me. Many of them thought I'd de- I was dead. So it was a wonderful privilege. The math took me across there. And I was able to greet the church and thank them for their prayers and told them I had no bitterness in my heart that God had carried me through and it was all glory to God. And um, uh, the president, these are some of our people from down south who were up at it. And our church president's wife is a a German Wycliffe missionary, Bettina. And uh, her husband, uh, our church president, is over here. And they were more than helpful to me. And eventually I had an opportunity to go down for two hours on a math plane uh, to Molita. And uh, this is some of the doctors. And uh, this is Sabine, uh, again, the German girl with uh, another German lady. That German lady was the lady who donated her blood to, uh, whenever I was shot. Um, uh, uh, it was free of HIV, etc., etc. And... Uh, uh, so uh, I had this opportunity to go down to Melita for two hours to try to t- pack up a few essential things and to hand over the work. Now, I said to the people who were going down with me, don't let anybody know that I'm coming. I want to have two hours to do this. Well, when I arrived, look at the crowd who were there. <laughs> so I didn't get much work done, especially as there were a whole vehicle of uh, the medicine, the, 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 the uh, administrator, the zone, all the high officials were all there. And of course, I had to spend time talking to them. But they were so relieved to see me well, because when I had left, of course, I wasn't conscious. And uh, so there was a lot of praise and glory to God. The building's still going on. The two hours went past very quickly. I didn't get done what I'd hoped to do, but it was wonderful just to see those people and just to be assured that God was still in control of the whole situation there and just to see their love and concern. And uh, this is a, a young doctor uh, here who's uh, training at Nebobongo could go back to work with us. And um, again, just time of fellowship before leaving to come back home to Ireland. And then from Congo, 
to Buckingham Palace. Now, some of you have heard about the OBE. Well, I just couldn't believe whenever I had been offered this, awarded the OBE and various other awards, as was mentioned this morning in church. And it just felt so humble. I just couldn't believe every award that I got. I just couldn't believe it. It, it really did take some convincing that I had got the award. But what an honor and what a privilege. And it's all thanks to God, because God hadn't called me into full-time work. I wouldn't have gotten. If the people at home hadn't prayed and supported me over the years, I wouldn't have gotten an award. So it's all glory to God and thanks to the Christians at home who supported me. And what an honor to meet Prince William and uh, just to talk to him. And uh, uh, final farewell uh, with my family. And it's what an honor. But, you know, there's a far, far greater honor ahead of us. We just read that earlier on. You know, the Lord Jesus has said that one day we're going to stand before him. And one day, whenever he comes back, uh, when we appear before him, what a thrill it will be to see him face to face and to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we read earlier, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with all his angels, and then he he will reward each person according to what he has done." And wouldn't that be great on that day that we'll not stand with our heads uh, 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 shamed with our heads down, uh, but we'll be able to look him face to face and to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. And, you know, I mentioned before about Hudson, about uh, uh, C.T. Studd and how he first obeyed God's command to go out to China to work with Hudson Taylor and then India and then to the Congo. And what an honor and how God has blessed him and what a reward Uh, he will be getting that day when Jesus comes back and what he's already entered into. Uh, But just finally, a couple of verses uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, when Peter was talking to the church there, he said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. The Lord Jesus had said, if any man will come out, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't mean living a life of ease, but it means being willing to suffer for him. So, he, so Paul, Peter is saying, don't be surprised when you, uh, at the painful thing, uh, trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Isn't that wonderful? What an honor, what a privilege that Jesus could trust me and trust me to be suffer for his name's sake and that he could entrust me to go through that and glorify him in it and to give him praise and glory. You know, we started off by reading the 23rd Psalm that we all know so well and so familiar with. But, you know, I've proved him as my true shepherd, and he was leading me. He led me by still waters. He's restored my soul. But in that valley, in that valley of death, he was with me. And even when I felt my life was ebbing away, yet he brought me back to life. I just want to give him glory. And he took, I had no fear. We read there, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And that's so, so true. And you prepare a table before me 
uh, in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I had no idea how this would all end. I had no idea that because I was shot that I would have wonderful opportunities of presenting the gospel to people who have never heard, who wouldn't come to a church, but I've had the opportunity of sharing the gospel with them in various ways. And what an honor to glorify Jesus. In it all, I want Jesus to be glorified. I don't enjoy press media or being in the news, uh, in the limelight or on the news or in the newspapers, but I want to glorify Jesus. And if he's glorified, that's, uh, that's worth it all. And it's wonderful to serve him. And I would just challenge anybody here this evening. You don't know, first of all, the Lord Jesus as your shepherd. You know, there's no better time than tonight to ask him into your life and to make him your shepherd. He makes no mistakes. He leads and guides us step by step. He'll not take us into that valley, that difficult experience, without preparing us, without being with us. And when he's with us, he'll carry us through. And he's promised that in his word. He said, there I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will be with you. And he's promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And it's so true. How many times I've proved that. You know, and those wonderful promises, way back at the very end, with this I close, way, way back at the very beginning when I felt I couldn't do God's work, I felt very inadequate. God gave me wonderful promises from 1 Corinthians in the last few verses of chapter 1. Brothers, think, it, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not. Why? To nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what I'm boasting of this evening. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to boast in him. I want to encourage you to follow him. Young people, if you're seeking God's will for your life, there's no more exciting job, exciting way to spend your life than to follow Jesus, be obedient to him, trust him, stand on his promises. It's the promises of God that have kept me all these years on the mission field. The promises of God in isolated areas, difficult areas, and that I've proved God. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He keeps his word. Man may fail us, but God never fails us. His promises never fail. And what a wonderful thrill to stand upon his word and to be obedient to him. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.